So tonight I wanted to give a talk that was um, a very taboo subject in Dharma circles, something we're really not supposed to talk about, actually something we're really not supposed to talk about culturally, period. So who can guess what it might be? (laughs) Very good. First guess. Nobody said sex, right? (laughs) It's either going to be sex or money, right? But it's money. Um, so I, what I wanted to do is I'm very interested in this topic and the, the relationship between Dharma and money and so I thought I'd give some I'd get us going and I'd talk for a little while and then we could really open it up and have a discussion about it because I think it's very relevant to our lives and to our life as a Dharma practitioner how do you relate to money it's huge I mean it's, it's such a huge portion of our lives and it's a place that we need to, in my mind, bring the Dharma into every area of our life. Um, part of the inspiration for this talk was the fact that about two weeks ago, I came home to an email from a woman, and it, w- it didn't just go to me, it went to several Buddhist teachers, and it said, my name is such and such, and I'm looking for, I'm a, sorry, I'm a producer of a reality TV series, in New York (laughs) network and I'm looking for a communicative non-consumerist Buddhist family to switch (laughs) with a super consumeristic family and spend a week in each other's shoes (laughs) and I was just completely intrigued by this right so I was just really really curious so I called her back and I said you know what are you looking for she said oh we're just dying to find this great Buddhist family we found one they weren't really good on camera so we're looking (laughs) we're looking for somebody else Uh, do you know anyone and I said well I'm not sure the people I know have the Buddhist values would be the ones who would want to be on TV and she said, I realize that, but you could spread the Dharma through, through TV. <laughs> and, um, and then I said, well, um, it turns out, of course, you don't have much control over what gets out there. The show, by the way, is Wife Slap. Has anyone seen that? The wife of, of the mom of a family goes to another mom's family. You know, they switch moms. And then you three days in that family's shoes, and then three days you get to impose your regime. So the Buddhist mom can make you meditate after the third day. Um, And so anyway, the whole point of the story is that she said to me, she said, so so there's a $20,000 honorarium for this, for the family that's willing to do this. Now, I know you Buddhists aren't interested in money. (laughs) But if you get it, you can donate it to your monastery or offer it to Tibet. And then she said, and just in case you think I'm looking for something other than, just just in case you think I'm really only after Buddhist families, I'm also looking for cheerleading families and a family that pampers its pets. (laughs) So anyway, if anybody's interested, please talk to me afterwards. (laughs) Um, But what it did was it kind of set me off on this whole interesting thinking about money and consumerism and Buddhism and this is also something actually I've been doing a lot of work around in the last two years. So um, 
I think money is one of the most confusing things out there. Really, it's amazing what people do for money. People will work in jobs that they hate for money. People will do anything for money. People will kill for money. <laughs> it's common that you can hire someone to murder someone for money. People um, commit suicide over money. Remember those newsreels of people you know, in the, in the 20s with the, um, the stock market crash and the people jumping out of the window because of the loss of their money. Every single war that has ever been fought in all of human history has an economic basis to it. Money is this extraordinarily powerful item. And it's just, what is it? I mean, it's, it's in our country, it's little green pieces of paper or plastic. And it has so much power. And I think it really, really behooves us as students of the Dharma to look at the relationship that we have to money and to see if we can bring it into the realm of practice and really begin to understand it. So in the Dharma world, money's not talked about so much, except for dana, right? <laughs> you know, that's the only time really we, we most Buddhist, Buddhist teachers give a talk about money. The only time is when we talk about dana. And that is sort of the way to make dana, um, dana is seen as very virtuous and spiritual and holy. And, um, and yet, you know, we are encountering money all the time, right? We're, we're dealing with it. So, it's, so it's, it's kind of funny that we don't talk about this. We're giving all this guidance for being in the world for our practice, but we never really talk about money. Maybe, I think Gil told me he did a talk about it a few years ago. Uh, so I went to the Buddha, and I talked to him, no, and, I, um, <laughs> and I found a sutta that is the, the sutta that he, ta- he talks to the lay people and tells them what are the conditions of what, for their well-being, for their welfare. So I figured this was the source of how, what's the Dharma approach to money. And um, it's called the Diga Janu Sutta, which is in the Anguttara Nikaya, for anyone who's interested. And evidently, this, well, this fairly well-off man went to the Buddha and asked him, what are the conditions for a householder's happiness? And he said, there are four conditions. One is effort. One is watchfulness. And here, when he means watchfulness, it's not so much mindfulness. What he means is taking care of your, of your um, property, being watchful that your property is not stolen from you. It does not get... Uh, get uh, go floods, you know, take it away by, taken away by floods or by robbers or by natural disasters. So you must have some watchfulness over your property of what you own. Good friends is the third. And the fourth is what he called balanced livelihood. And it said, knowing his income and expenses, he leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly. Knowing that thus his income will stand in excess of his expenses, but not his expenses in excess of his income. So the Buddha was probably not in favor of credit cards, right? (laughs) Anyway, but he goes on. He says, there are four sources of the destruction of our wealth. One is debauchery, two is drunkenness, three is gambling, and four is friendship with evil doers. Then it says, but the wealth itself is not enough. 
okay? So, and also the wealth can lead to problems both um, personally and societally. So what he said was he then offered the conditions of spiritual progress. So first you work on, you get to your, your money stuff in order, is kind of my reading of it, and then you work on your spiritual practice. So he says the four conditions of that are faith, virtue, meaning the five precepts, charity, which I'll go into, and then wisdom, where he says, you know, knowing the Four Noble Truths, knowing the Five Khandas, knowing the Eightfold Path, etc., that will bring true happiness for the householder. And charity is, he dwells with a heart free from avarice, devoted to charity, delighting in generosity, attending to the needy, delighting in the distribution of alms. So that's where Donna really comes in as a source of happiness and well-being for the layperson, for the householder. So I think one of the things that's very interesting about this sutta and, um, and its relevance to our lives is he talks about this not, neither being extravagant nor miserly. So I'll take both of them and look at them because in Buddhist circles, I'll start with miserly. There's a real um, adoration of the monastics. But it can also get to the point where people feel like, even though they're living a lay, as a layperson in the world, that they have to be like a monastic. So you have to shun money. Money is evil. Money is bad. And I've, I've seen this for years in spiritual circles, people who feel that, they, that poverty is a virtue. And in fact, it's in pretty much every religious tradition, this idea that poverty is a virtue. And yet there is the whole system of dana in the Buddhist world where the people who have support the people who don't have. So it's interesting where, where we get, um, what I've seen with people I know is that they, they start to feel uh, like, like it's, it's shameful to want or to have things or to have money. And I know for myself, um, I think many of you know, I started my spiritual practice in my early 20s. And so I got into the Dharma and I just went on retreat, essentially, for many, many years. So I was on retreat and I was practicing and then I was working in nonprofits in between and spent years doing this. And then finally, a few years ago, when I left the Buddhist Peace Fellowship where I'd been working, I thought, oh, well, how am I going to make money? And I thought, oh, money is evil. Money is bad. Money is not pure. I'll just figure it out. I'll just be a Dharma teacher. It'll all work out. You know, I thought I would be the, some exception to a rule or something. But of course, it doesn't all just work out. It works out to a certain degree. I mean, there is support as a Dharma teacher. But actually, I had to really, really start paying attention to money. And I hated it. I, I thought money was the antithesis of everything I believed in. I thought money wasn't spiritual, wasn't virtuous, that poverty was a virtue. I thought money, I was opposed to the entire capitalist system. I mean, I thought money was the worst possible thing there was. And therefore, as a spiritual person, I could have nothing to do with money. But when I started realizing that I needed money to live on and to eat and all those things, and I began a process of saying, oh, well, there's so much aversion here probably worth exploring. And it's interesting in our lives when we um, hit something where we really feel a lot of aversion. It's like, okay, what is there to learn here? I had this real turning point when I was reading this book called The Soul of Money, that some of you may know, by Lynn Twist, who is a fundraiser. And she, um, 
And she talked about going to India to meet with the great philanthropist who funded Gandhi's movement. And I heard this and I thought, Gandhi's movement was funded? <laughs> you got to be kidding. It never ever even occurred to me. And for me, Gandhianism was the synthesis of the things that I believed in so strongly, the political and the spiritual. And I thought, there was money behind it? And I don't know if um, you've ever heard this quote, but it finally dawned on me. It made sense when I heard that. It, it said, there's a famous quote that said, it took millions of rupees to keep Gandhi in poverty. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so... So I began to see like, oh, there isn't some essential badness or evilness about money, that it was actually something I needed to get to understand and to know and to, and to explore. And so I began, this started about two years ago, a whole process of really exploring my relationship to money, both practically, spiritually, and psychologically. And it's just been a wonderful, wonderful journey that, of course, turns out really has nothing to do about, with money. I mean, it has everything to do with money, but at the same time, it's also about self-confidence and one's place in the world and one's relationship to power and one's relationship to security and you know it's this incredibly rich field of exploration and lots of practical things to explore and do on the way. So that's one side, that's the miserly side, that's the poverty is a virtue side. Um, and just to say of course the Buddha exalted the monks and said that the holy life was the, the life that one would want to lead if it was possible, that living as a monk or nun was the way to, or probably the easiest, I think that's the best way of thinking about it, the easiest way to practice. Because when we're here in, in lay life, you know, we're so busy paying bills and with our family and do, that we don't have a lot of as much energy free for the practice and to reach liberation. So the other side that the, he talked about in that sutta was extravagance. So there's miserliness on one side and the extravagance on the other side. And I just think this side is so interesting for those of us who are really embedded in the world. So first we can look at the extravagance within Buddhism itself and the fact that, you know how they talk about that when Buddhism went into each country that it took on the characteristics of the country. So, um, so, for instance, when it went into China, it took on characteristics of Confucianism or within, within um, Tibet, it took in a lot of the, the um, shamanic and Hindu practices. And then when it comes to America, it takes on consumerism. Right. And so we get, we get, you know, Buddha alarm clocks and little Zafus that cost $75 for your own meditation cushion and, and all of that. And I mean, think about it, retreats that are really expensive and, you know, those magazines with all the things for, to want in Buddhism. You know, it's, it's really ironic. And, and, and I think the issues around this are really significant as Westerners. Um, the issue of class in Buddhism, the issue of, of how is it accessible are these teachings to everyone. And yes, it's by dana, but sometimes there's this underlying sense of, oh, but you have to give, you know, or, um, or you look at a retreat and it's $600 for a whole week and you think, I can't afford this, or um, you, you, people have, I'm sure you've all heard this, but people have tended to characterize this form of Buddhism as the upper middle way. <laughs> Have you heard that? I guess not. <laughs> 
so there's all these issues of class that I think are tied into the money issues that we're not necessarily exploring because we're not talking about money and we're not talking about class and we're not talking about dharma and money. And then there's the piece that, in relation to extravagance, that I think many of us are dealing with and I, uh, um, around how much is enough. You know, and does money bring happiness? And everything in the culture says, yes, the more money you have, the happier you'll be. And the Dharma says that happiness doesn't come from something external, that it comes from from inside. And what is our relationship to money? And, um, you know, recently, not recently, within the last couple of years, there was someone who did a study of does money buy happiness? And she found that, I guess it was in the last couple of years, so um, what she found was that up to $50,000, it does. (laughs) It's really interesting. If you don't have food and um, rent money and a home and medical and so forth, you know, you're not that happy. But once you get to 50,000, what she then saw was that nobody really had more happiness who who had more than $50,000. It's really, really interesting, right? So we have these questions to ask as Dharma students, like how much is enough? And I've been starting to talk with people about this issue of money and Dharma, and it's been so interesting to hear people say, yeah, I'm grappling with this question, and I'm really grappling with this question alone, right? Because we're not really supposed to talk about money. But, um, but, you know, I want, for instance, one man was saying how he has... He wants his daughter to feel like she has abundance, yet he doesn't want her to be materialistic. You know, and how do you walk that line? How, do, how much is enough? What makes you happy? When do we say no, 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 enough? And then what do we do? Does it mean we become voluntarily simplistic? Does it mean we start giving away our money? Does it mean, um, I don't know what it could mean. I mean, it could mean many, many things. So I think the last thing I'll say before we open it up um, is some of the other interesting pieces around money and being a Dharma practitioner have to do with taking our precepts really seriously. So on a personal level, what I've seen with people is that they follow the five precepts really rigorously except when it comes to money. You know, I don't, I mean, maybe not. I've, I just, I've experienced this. For instance, people I know who seem to be very, very upstanding people, yet they lie to the IRS. You know, and that's considered okay because everyone hates the IRS. But where does one's ethical precepts line up? Where is one, is one taking what hasn't been offered? You know, it's an interesting thing to think about. But then, of course, it brings in the whole issue was what if you don't like where your taxes are going, right? Um, and I won't go there, but <laughs> but it, it's just it, it becomes way more complex when we think about the precepts on a bigger level. When we think about we're investing, our money is investing, and it's in this economy, and this economy is profiting from people around the planet who are suffering due to the way that the United States is profiting, right? And so what does that mean as a Dharma practitioner? If you take the second precept or the first precept, you know, is my money in some way providing um, 
at going towards the military establishment. And I don't, for instance, in my case, I don't believe in this war that we're in the middle of. Well, is my money somehow circulating through that? And then what, is, what does that mean? What are the implications? What are the implications for my, for my precepts? So there's a lot. You know, there's a lot to talk about. And I just want to remind us um, of the importance, like, that really the Dharma is so much about our relationship to, an investigation of our relationship to everything. And that, for me, my, medi- my Dharma practice doesn't stop at the cushion. But it really has to kind of infiltrate and go into all the nooks and crannies of every aspect of my life so that I can get free wherever I'm stuck and I can learn and grow and I feel like that is the promise of this practice. So that's just some of my thoughts and um, what I'd love to do is really to have a dialogue for the next period of time. And you, we have Is it on? I don't know. That, that's a great topic. Thank you. Yeah. I I remember this book called Your Money or Your Life, and yeah. he had you go through and um, put all the time and money that it took to make money, and then he had you catalog all the things you spent money on, and it was really interesting. And I did that for a while, like a couple of years, and. I don't feel like I have such a bad relationship with money, but the the thing that I took home from that was, you know, when someone, you know, the stock market crashes and they're jumping off a ledge, it's not because they've lost their money, it's because they won't be able to support their family. And there was a guy that killed his two daughters and, and his wife and himself in San Francisco, like within the last week. And he, I mean, people were saying that was because of a financial crisis, but it it seems to me that it's not, he didn't do that because of money. He did it because he can't, you know, he can't face his family and tell them that he can't support them in the way that mm-hmm. he wants to be able to support them. It's, to me, it's like money is just, you know, one, you know, one phase of, of an, an energy, you know, just like, like ice and water and, and water vapor. It's, mm-hmm. it's all, it's all mm-hmm. hydrogen um, H2O, but it's, you know, it's different, different states of the same stuff and mm-hmm. you know it's our, our practice is our intention and you know it, it goes it can flow through different things and be manifested in different things and it's I mean money is one of them it's to me it's not like that part is evil whereas the liquid part is fine and you know mm-hmm. and so on thanks yeah thanks hi Diane uh, <coughs> Something came up for me when you were talking about um, poverty is a virtue. Is that what the word you used? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that that's precisely how it was. I think it's voluntary poverty is. If, if, if it's something you have chosen to do, it can be a path of, of virtue. But I don't think that if you ask people who were born into poverty and eat mud for lunch, what mm-hmm. that that's particularly virtuous. I think the emphasis is on it being something that you sign up for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, I'll start with that. I, I was going to 
thrilled to hear that Gandhi spent millions of dollars to live in poverty. I recall when I was a kid, I saw him moving in a third class and the whole train was his and that cost him millions of rupees but he was traveling in a third class which was a big debauchery in my own way but that's the way the public accepted that he's poor, wearing poor clothes but this journey from one city to other city cost him millions of rupees. So he was living like a millionaire in a poverty. Thank you very much for clarifying. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Mm. Can I ask one more question? Sure. If money is an exchange between the human being and, uh, and the external world, if there is no money, how will this exchange take place? What does the dharma say about it? But, but if there's no... Today the money is being used. Uh -huh. For example, I came here. I have to have a car, I have to have a gas. Mm -hmm. It's a medium of exchange for me to come and do the meditation, mm -hmm. which is very virtuous. Suppose that there's no money, how will the, the dharma be practiced? Is there any answer in the in the Buddhist books? Well, I, I don't think that that's speculated about because money exists and a monetary economy existed at the time of the Buddha. So um, there's even one little thing I read once that said that Buddhism arose within a mercantile economy as a way of helping keep people honest, you know, practicing that precept. But um, so I don't, so it's, there isn't really much speculation. It's more about what is the right relationship, the healthy relationship to this energy as we're, we were talking about. Um, so yeah, we need to eat, we need to drive, or we don't necessarily need to drive, but we do. Um, <laughs> we, um, these things all take some form of exchange in order to make them happen. So yeah. how do we be healthy about it? I just want to say, Diana, brava. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, because really, I don't know, maybe we're all really thinking. I know I am. And so please don't take silence as the end of it. And I just want to thank you so much for for your directness and your enthusiasm. And thank you for studying that for two years. And I think we, the rest of us need to do it too. But I appreciate so much that you brought it up. And, and the other thing, it seems to me, um, what's really out of control, the way I see it, is, is more the corporate representation of money than the individual who might be out of control and is too extravagant or something. I, I know that's a problem too, but somehow I think that could be manageable if more people would think about the Dharma, but on a corporate level, it just seems that the world is going out of control because kind of the U.S. is leading the way, but mm -hmm. that's where I have more concern. So do you have any thought about yeah. that? Yeah, no, I think it's a huge issue in these times. I mean, the, the way that CEOs are paid compared to how they were even 20 years ago is just astonishing. And the, the lack of controls on corporation are, um, 
and their ability to really do anything at this point is is one of the markers of these times. And I, you know, I keep asking the question. I think it's a really li- it's a really live question for me. Like as a practitioner, how do we work with these giant systems of injustice and violence? And I don't think it's very clear. I mean, little examples I know are like one of my friends was teaching. Uh, mindfulness meditation in Monsanto. This was about five years ago, and um, the CEO at the time, I think it was the CEO, anyways, some upper level person, ended up resigning after a couple of years of meditating, which is very interesting. But, but um, so I don't think, I mean, obviously meditation is tiny in relation to the access, but I, I, all I can do is just reiterate how important a question you're asking is. I don't have a lot of answers. Do, do you, did you want to respond? Let's um, use the mic so that we can get this. Uh, it sounds like it's not on. Is it on? Yeah. It's hard for me to talk. Um, yeah, I, 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 I wanted to ask you to expound on what you just said. You can't. You don't know how to talk any further about mm-hmm. the big system, the money, the all of us pay taxes, almost, at least almost all of us must pay taxes, and a lot of it goes to um, spending which, which we may consider unethical. Mm-hmm. And it's a quandary. Um, that's, that's a big one, and I don't know where to go with it, because there's war resistance and there's withholding taxes and stuff. To me, it doesn't seem like it's going to work very well. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're caught in this really intricate web of systemic violence, you know, that has that has so much power and such a momentum of its own. And I think that part of the work that we do is we get ourselves really clean. You know, we do as much as we can to be as clear and know that we're in the system and that we're never going to be pure because the system itself. Is creates an impossibility of any kind of purity. And so letting oneself just say, okay, yeah, I'm part of the system, and now I'm going to, one, work on myself, two, be active. You know, there are times when, there's, when it's appropriate to do responses, to um, go out and to agitate, to write letters, to try to transform institutions, to create alternative institutions, to... Um, to, you know, any kind of work that counteracts that I think is really, really important. And for me, I mean, as you know, I mean, this is part of my Dharma practice, being engaged politically, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody feels that way. Um, You know, sometimes I get really hopeful and I say, oh, I think about Joanne Macy's notion of this great turning, that we're actually in this process of moving from this giant... uh, you know, unhealthy system into a better place in the future and that we're part of that change that's happening. It's a big one. Yeah. Sure, whoever. I really also appreciate... Is it on? Yeah, can't tell either. Um, I really appreciate also you bringing up this topic because... Um, I do fundraising for a living. Mm. And so I see the incredible good that comes from large accumulations of wealth and also the manipulation and you know all different things that come with this kind of accumulation. However, this building itself, which I was involved in um, our raising of the funds for it, 
I can just tell you that there are about two or three very, very large gifts of $50,000 or more. And if those gifts hadn't happened, we wouldn't have burned our mortgage in April. So large accumulations of money, including with venture capital, et cetera, and people mm -hmm. who are anonymous with it, that made this building happen as yeah. soon as it did. So it's, it's really a very, very tricky and an interesting slope that we have talking Absolutely. about money and what it can do. And just going back to what the Buddha was saying about the importance of generosity, you know, that, that is because of the generosity this center is here and because of that wealth. And who knows where that wealth came from, but it's here and then it's going, you know. I mean, it's, there are lots of issues to think through. Yeah, someone, I don't know who has it. Uh, I have found it difficult to have much hope when I see... Um, that this wonderful democracy that we have is essentially being bought by big money, the legislators and, and so on, the lobbyists. But what I want to say is that I have real hope because, and, and I'm gonna, this is a political thing I'm going to be saying, but I think that we as uh, Dharma practitioners need to be involved in our government too. And I mean, we're citizens and we need to take that seriously. But anyway, there's a bill in uh, Congress now that would make clean money in California for clean money, and maybe you, some people know about it, uh, which would mean public money rather than uh, people you know, contributing big money or their own money. So public money would fund candidates, so therefore candidates would not have to uh, spend a lot of time getting money and would be able to talk with the people. It's happened in Arizona. It's working for about four years, five years now, and in also in Maine and people, uh, over half of them, have been elected with clean money, which is public money, and they're not um, beholden to anybody except the citizens. Mm -hmm. So this is coming to California, and it's going elsewhere. Many states are looking at it, and I just feel there's hope here that we really could reclaim this wonderful democracy that we have and get out of that uh, a terrible thing that, we, that mm -hmm. it's been bought, period. Right. So there's hope. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think that it's easy for us to get focused on some of the larger, more sort of cataclysmic events associated with money wars and Congress, et cetera. But I think within the subject of money is, is an even more taboo subject that people really don't like to talk about, which is classism. Mm -hmm. And I have been both above and below that 50,000 line, and it, it works it works on both sides. People form judgments about other people based on how much money they have, um, both if you don't have it and if you have it. And I think that I think a much more um, productive way, uh, at least in the short term, of spending our time focusing on money is thinking about judgments that we make about other classes of people because people don't want to admit it, but there are socioeconomic classes and people do all of us at one point or another make judgments about different classes. So I think that if we start to recognize that and, and address that and, and not do that so much, I think that we could be um, moving forward a lot more productively in our attachments to money than, you know, while we're also focusing on these other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. And it just, it strikes me that this is a place really for our mindfulness practice. You know, seeing what arises in your mind, noticing your classism arising, your judgments, and really, oh, there's my classism, and not being afraid of it, and just saying, oh, there it is, because it's so culturally conditioned. And then with the mindfulness, learning to let go and really be present to whatever is arising. So it's 
really good you're bringing that up. Somebody over here, a couple. Yeah, hi. Um, I had recently heard Peter Cameo speak, and he does. Peter Cameo, and he does. He's done written a book on socially responsible investing. And like yourself, I, I have a lot of aversion towards money. And but early when I was young, I put away some money and was kind of rather surprised at how it has grown over 20 years. You know, and and kind of wondering how that happened and what supported that. I mean, what it supported actually. Mm-hmm. And I think through my practice of sitting, wondering where. What, you know, it's been in mutual funds and things that are just conglomerates of stuff that you don't really truly understand what you're supporting. Mm -hmm. And his talk made me really think about uh, one thing he mentioned was is that many people have the perception that if you invest your money in socially responsible investments that you'll make less. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, that's really not true. So overcoming that misconception, but also then thinking about the power you have with socially responsible investing. And if we all decided to start making conscious choices in that manner, how the world might change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that really takes some effort in mm-hmm. discovery and what, where, what's moving. Yeah. And it's great you bring it up and I just want to say that this is for all of us to decide like where does my dharma practice go in relation to socially responsible investing is that a part of my practice or is it something that you know I don't feel I, or you, other people have other reasons I've heard lots of other arguments against socially responsible and also for but is it a part of your practice that's, that's really what I'm kind of trying to throw back at all of us, just where are we examining our life in relation to our ethics, our beliefs, and our, you know, our our deepest spiritual values. So, very good. So, thank you. Somebody has a, yeah, go ahead. Uh, (coughs) I read an article about a study was done at MIT about happiness and stuff, the value of technology and gadgets and all of that. And they've done very extensive uh, research and they found that there is a level of basic necessity, I guess that would be the 50,000 probably mentioned. And then it doesn't make any difference. And they found the happiest consistently are the Amish. Mm. And (laughs) that they they have the most consistent contentment and happiness. And then after that, the people with more than $200 million. Interesting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think we have time for one more, and then we should probably. <laughs> I just wanted to make a little a little remark that um, I was really struck by the two things that the you follow the precepts and everything except when it comes to money, and the other thing was the bringing up of the corporation. Because we invented these things called corporations, and they are like a person, and yet they have other aspects to them, like they live forever and so on. But <laughs> legally, they live forever. They, they can live forever. Um, but 
you know, if people, I think there are many people working in corporations that would, would make their own, quote, personal decisions in whether they are Buddhists following the precepts or whatever system they're following in some kind of a moral way. Mm-hmm. When they go into the corporation, then somehow they have another criterion. And it's just interesting to me. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just sitting thinking about that. When, when you're making a corporate decision, you don't say, well, the corporation should follow the precepts. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know why not, but you don't do that. You know. Yeah, yeah. You say, well, the corporation should make money. And, and that's right. it, that seems like a pretty empty goal, actually. Right. So I don't know where to go with that, but it just struck me. I always thought it would be nice to take the five precepts and apply them to our institutions. <coughs> you know? It's doing like an ethical inventory of within institutions. I mean, that's exactly what you're pointing to. Um, How about to our government? Well, yeah, that's in another institution. <laughs> so, um, so this obviously could be a very long conversation. And just to say, I, um, Gil and I are talking, I'm going to probably do a day next year on at the Sati Center, um, sort of looking more at the texts and the, looking at Buddhism in relation to money and also... Um, and they, down the road, start doing classes on dharma and money, but I haven't gotten that far yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a live subject, and it will return <laughs> somehow, like your investments. No, just <laughs> <laughs> um, so why don't we just end with a really short set? I invite you to simply feel where you are in this moment in relation to money and all that's gotten stirred up. And maybe offer some kindness to yourself for the intensity of this issue and the complexity. Maybe just hold the bigger picture in your heart, the vast excesses of wealth next to these tremendous poverty and the confusion that money holds in this culture in these times. So may all beings be happy and free from all forms of suffering. And may our merit of tonight, may it benefit all beings, reducing suffering, increasing happiness. May it engender awakened hearts and minds everywhere. <laughs>